Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We will try to start on time so, as we, so that we have some time for discussion at the end. Um, welcome to LSE. Uh, my name is Jan-Kan Heisterkamp, and um, I am very happy to see you all here tonight, especially on such a lovely day where you would probably be rather drinking a beer outside. Um, tonight is our third LSE arbitration debate. Um, this is part of our transnational law project, and I invite you to go to our website to see our past events where you find also the recordings of uh, many of those events, which I think are quite interesting. Our past arbitration debates have so far been all with our centennial professor, Jan Poulsen. Um, many of you will remember that we have had in this room the first arbitration debate with um, Alexis Moore on the question of unilaterally appointed arbitrators. We had a second debate with Jeffrey Golden about the suitability of international arbitration for financial markets disputes. That was a little bit less controversial since Jeffrey was eventually quite convinced that arbitration is a good thing <laughs> in that respect, as you all know about his prime finance project taking off, having taken off a couple of months ago. Tonight we have, so, the third edition, and tonight we have the great pleasure of having with us Professor Pierre Mayer. Pierre Mayer is one of the eminent arbitration specialists from Paris, yet another encounter with the Paris arbitration uh, community. And Pierre Mayer will tonight be discussing with Jan Poulsen on the issue of unlawful laws. This comes from an article that Jan Paulsen has written following his Lalif lecture, um, I think two years ago. And um, unfortunately, tonight is also the Lalif lecture <laughs> in Geneva, but we're happy that you preferred London over Geneva. Um, and as if it were necessary to moderate, tonight we are having also Johnny Vida as the moderator and maybe the arbitrator in this uh, debate. Without further ado, just a little introduction by Johnny and we can take off. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure um, you will do what I will do in a minute, which is so hot in here. Please uh, take off your jackets if you felt too embarrassed not to do so before. Anyway, as you heard, this debate started uh, some time ago. It started, in fact, in 2000 with uh, Pierre Maillet's Freshfields lecture on the arbitrator's duty to apply the law. And then he took a new direction, a distinctive new direction with Jan Poulsen in his Lalive lecture in 2009. Now both lectures were published in Arbitration International and the Exit Review and so they caused a certain amount of interest. That interest was increased last year with Pierre Mouillard's article in the Revue de l'Arbitrage which, and I'll put it politely, dissected Jan's thesis. So these articles have received a wider attention outside this country, reflecting very different theoretical approaches to an arbitrator's task of applying both national and international laws. But there's a special need for this debate in England, because the starting point, I dare say, for most of us here tonight, is that none of us think that legal theory matters very much, and certainly not with the pragmatic legal certainties long established in London arbitration. Now, it was Laurie Craig, who I'm very glad to see here tonight, the doyen 
of Anglophone and Francophone international arbitration, who said long ago, and he was the employer of these two stellar speakers at the beginning of their, the very beginning of their careers. It was Laurie Craig who said, some struggle to see if a legal theory works in practice. That's the English. But others struggle to see if a legal practice works in theory. And that's the non-English. Now, he knew that with conflict of laws and the hierarchy of laws, laws, statutes, and subordinate legislation, there's not much room for a legal theory in English law. We like to think that arbitration works in practice, both for commercial arbitration and treaty-based international arbitration. And the vast scope and historical richness of Dicey, Morris, and Collins are testaments to that fact. But that legal certainty was compromised for London arbitration by Section 46.3 of the 1996 Act, influenced by the model law, permitting an arbitrator to choose any conflict rules not limited to English law. So are we right in this jurisdiction to be so smugly complacent? I'm going to mention only three factors before we start the debate. First of all, you will find that many of the speaker's legal terms are not used by practicing English lawyers. For example, we do not ordinarily use the term norm or norme before an English judge or arbitrator unless we wish to refer to the late lamented husband of Dame Edna Everidge. <laughs> and secondly, we do need to remember Lord Wilberforce's Delphic but trenchant criticism of the 1996 Act during its second reading in the House of Lords, regretting its failure to recognize an arbitrator's task in developing not only new procedural rules for arbitration, but also new substantive rules, <coughs> comments repeated with approval by Lord Stane in his speech in the Imprigillo case. And third, we do in fact see in practice the actual problem raised by these two speakers. For example, in a recent commercial award, unsuccessfully challenged under Section 69 of the 1996 Act, a tribunal comprised of three distinguished English lawyers rejected a claim by an insured against insurers for legal liability under an indemnity policy for a settlement compromising French legal proceedings brought in the French courts under an old statute enacted under the Vichy regime. And they did this, although the same tribunal found as a fact on expert legal evidence, including the Batonnier of Paris, that the insured would probably have been held liable before the French courts, even on appeal to the Court de Cassation, but wrongly so, in their view, as a matter of substantive French law. How they did it, we'll find out tonight because Pierre Meyer will start with a brief introduction to certain examples. He'll then be followed by Jan Poulsen, and we'll take it from there. But there will be lots of time for your interventions and comments when uh, the debate reaches half-time. Pierre. Thank you, Johnny. Um, as you said, the uh, discussion between Jan and I is... Uh, very theoretical and abstract. And uh, in order to make it more concrete, it has been agreed between us, but that before we enter into the presentation of, of our opposing views, uh, I would like to give you a few examples of arbitral awards uh, which had to decide what to do 
in the presence of uh, what I would call a hierarchic conflict of norms between a lower norm, for instance a law, and a higher norm, for instance a treaty or a, the constitution. In fact, in our respective articles, Yan and I do not give any example, and it's true that there are not so many. Uh, but since I wrote my article, I found three examples which I will briefly uh, describe. And after that, um, I will also give you a few indications on how the conflict between um, a statute and uh, either a treaty or the constitution of a country um, can be resolved or is to be resolved uh, by a court or even by an arbitral tribunal. Uh, and we will see that in comparative law, there is a great variety of uh, solutions. So first, the examples of awards. First example, uh, an, an arbitral tribunal sitting in France. Uh, the claimant is SMEG, a Belgian collector exporter of corn, which has bought 250 tons of corn from Poupardine, a French uh, company. But Poupardine does not deliver the corn because a French administrative body, uh, OBIC, has withdrawn its approval of SMEG as collector exporter. Uh, and that it did pursuant to the French rural code, code rural. Um, in the arbitration, SMEG says that the provision of the code and the decision uh, by ONIC are contrary to the European Community Treaty and more particularly the principle of free circulation of goods and claims damages. Uh, the arbitral tribunal sitting in France decided that it has no jurisdiction over that specific issue and then that therefore the French law and the decision were perfectly correct and that uh, the claim for damages should be dismissed. That's the first example. Second example, a domestic case in Portugal. Liscont, a Portuguese company, enters into a contract with the administration of the port of Lisbon, APL. It's a concession contract for the extension and the management of the harbor. Uh, prior to the execution of the contract, a decree has approved it, as it must be the case uh, under Lisbon uh, Portuguese law. Some time after that, uh, the parliament votes a law annulling the contract and the decree because it finds it uh, contrary to public interest. There's an arbitration, and Liscount relies on the contract and contends that the law is contrary to the constitution, Portuguese constitution, because it's retroactive. And the arbitral tribunal accepts the, to, first, to apply the constitution. And second, it finds in the constitution, article 266, pursuant to which an administration must respect the principle of good faith, which is rather vague, but the arbitral tribunal derives from that something more precise 
which is the principle of security, which, uh, of course, uh, cannot uh, bear a retroactive uh, law. Therefore, the law is uh, considered contrary to the Constitution, and the concession contract is considered valid. Third example, it's an exit case. Uh, Ecuador versus Occidental Petroleum, an American uh, company uh, in petroleum. Uh, Occidental uh, benefits of a concession in Ecuador, and then uh, things happen. Um, there is a treaty between uh, Ecuador and the United States, uh, pursuant to which an investor may seize exit. Uh, of any dispute relating to the investment. As a defense, uh, Ecuador argues, our law, Ecuadorian law, on administrative matters prohibits arbitration in administrative matters, to which Occidental objects, yes, but the Constitution in Ecuador places the treaty above the law, and that's what convinced the arbitral tribunal. So these are three examples, not any of them is one, the one mentioned by Johnny. That will be a fourth one. Now, second part of this short introduction, some comparative law elements on how to solve in the various laws uh, hierarchic conflicts. Um, first, briefly, conflict between a law and a treaty. In civil law countries, generally, the treaty prevails over the law, and a court must refuse to apply the law if it's contrary to the treaty. Uh, and that is so even, at least in France, after some hesitation, uh, even if the law has been adopted after the treaty had been ratified. The treaty always takes precedence. In, in England, I cannot tell about other common law countries, a court does not apply directly a treaty, even if it's ratified. The treaty has to be integrated in a statute, and then there is no conflict between, at least not a hierarchic conflict, because the two, the prior law and the law incorporating the treaty, are at the same level. Um, what about uh, conflict between uh, a law and the Constitution. Um, various approaches, and I just give a few examples. In France, until 2008, there was no control of constitutionality of uh, laws by courts. Once a law had been passed and accepted by the Cour, uh, Conseil Constitutionnel, it was there until it be uh, abrogated. The courts couldn't do anything about it. Um, nothing was said about what an arbitral tribunal could or should do. Uh, pursuant to the modification in 2008, uh, the courts, civil courts, uh, or administrative courts, may raise before the, uh, or may raise, rather, may raise what is called a QPC, question prioritaire de constitutionnalité. That means whether the law is uh, in conformity with the Constitution. That is screened first by the 
Supreme Court, I mean highest court, either Conseil d'État or Cour de Cassation, depending on whether it's civil or administrative. And then if the uh, problem, the issue is considered serious by this court, it is transferred to the Conseil Constitutionnel, which, if it finds that really the law is contrary to the Constitution, may not invalidate it, but abrogate it, abrogate it for the future, unless it specifies that it's also for the past. <coughs> that is not a possibility open to arbitral tribunals that has been decided by the Cour de Cassation uh, last year. Uh, a court may and even must raise the QPC, and an arbitral tribunal may not. In Italy, uh, it's more or less the opposite, uh, in that not only the courts, but also the arbitral tribunals, at least sitting in Italy, at least sitting in Italy, must raise the problem of constitutionality uh, before the uh, Corte Costituzionale. In Spain, courts have to do it. There are also a constitutional tribunal. Courts have to seize it. Arbitral tribunals may not. In Portugal, all courts and arbitral tribunals sitting in Portugal may uh, decide themselves, decide themselves whether the law is uh, in conformity with the Constitution. But after they have decided that it is not, if, if that's the case, then the Attorney General brings it to the Constitutional Court who finally decides. Um, in the United States, uh, any court, and I guess, but if I'm wrong, someone will say, uh, any court, any arbitral tribunal may decide on the issue, at least inter partes, inter partes, and subject to the appeals. Um, these are, in the, I say nothing about England, first because I would be afraid of saying something which is not true, and secondly because it seems to me that you have no written constitution and then the problem does not arise. Um, so there are indications on how arbitral tribunals and not only courts uh, have to react, at least when they sit in the very country. When they sit abroad, it's not clear at all. Um, but maybe that will be clarified after we've heard, yeah. Thank you very much. Now we're going to hear Jan Thank you and good evening to you all. It seems to me that in the annals of lengthy debates about legal philosophy, it takes about 10 years before the thing gets nicely venomous. Uh, and I have a feeling that rule number one here, who is the last to take off the gloves? Um, <laughs> and I, I was really thinking it wouldn't be me. Um, let me start off by telling you what I said in Geneva, uh, which was the thing to which Pierre Maillard reacted. Uh, it was two and a half years ago. Um, one or two people present tonight were actually there, I, I notice. Uh, and at the end of it uh, came the longest period of interactive discussion with the audience I've ever experienced as a public speaker. It wasn't so much that the audience 
questioned the substance of what I had been saying. It was much worse. Uh, they were questioning the propriety of the subject. This couldn't possibly be a subject because they'd never heard about it before, and therefore it couldn't be an important and proper thing to, to talk about because there were people there who talked about important things, and, and this was something they seemed not to have heard about and rejected on that basis. So here, I think Pierre Mayer and I uh, can agree on one point, one premise to begin with, that, that even for lawyers, now and then it's okay to talk about something new. I said 10 things in Geneva, and I have my notes, and let me just tell you what the 10 things were. First, a fundamental issue of applicable law seems to have escaped attention. It's likely to have a number of conceivable ramifications which lie beneath the surface and deserve some analysis. Secondly, broadly speaking, the issue concerns the role of an international court or tribunal in determining whether specific prescriptions of national law are valid by reference to fundamental norms of that law itself. Three, we may be at an even higher level of abstraction than constitutional law or written constitutional law. Because in difficult cases, the controversy reaches the very licitness of purported constitutional amendments. Fourth, the expression higher levels of abstraction is not to be taken as a synonym for sterile mental exercise. In difficult cases of the greatest importance to an entire society, it is precisely true that the abuse of power ultimately confronts a high and powerful abstraction. It is worth thinking about. Fifth, at one level down, we find issues of licitness of purported acts of legislation. This is ordinary constitutional law, i.e. evaluating enactments by the light of the formal constitution in place. There should be nothing outlandish about the proposition that international tribunals empowered to apply national law make plenary determinations about constitutionality, no matter what government officials say, and without any subservience to pronouncements by a national judiciary. Sixth, although there may be overlap, there is no reason to expect that national corrective norms are coextensive with international ones. The latter are perhaps more likely to involve high thresholds, such as international minimum standards. The former may be quite ordinary, the national ones, affecting regulations which would not stand a chance of being seen as violative of international law, yet are to be denied effect because they fail to satisfy a national requirement for effectiveness. Seventh. It is essential not to equate purported mandatory laws with public policy. The declaration that an enactment or decree is, quote, inverted commas, mandatory, achieves no higher status by that simple expedient. Laws themselves must be subject to the rule of law. Eighth, to say that international adjudicators have plenary jurisdiction to apply national law implies that they may disregard the views of the National Supreme Court. Naturally, this prospect must be viewed with circumspection. At one extreme, an international tribunal should not hesitate to contradict a National Supreme Court 
which has very recently expressed its views in the context of the very matter which has now reached the international domain. At another extreme, the international tribunal should respect a venerable national Supreme Court decision which has had its sway for decades and achieved an unquestioned normative status as part of the national law. Between the two, two extremes, however, lies the challenge, familiar to so many issues of fundamental interest to lawyers, that of locating a dividing line. Ninth, we should naturally consider the effect of the application of national corrective norms on perceptions of the, of the legitimacy of international adjudication. It may be argued, on the one hand, that national sentiment may be offended by the presumption of international adjudicators uh, to apply national norms, which can only be properly understood by those who are part of the national community. Certainly, it is likely that the government of the day and its supporters of the day will take umbrage. But as long as international adjudicators are mandated to apply the national law, which is, after all, something which ex hypothesis is inherent in the commitment to international jurisdiction, they simply cannot do so selectively. The difficult questions are precisely the ones likely to be important. In the long run, when a government has overreached, when it has cowed legislators or judges, when it has followed the practice of weakening the judiciary, even citizens of the country whose laws in question may come to see the international tribunal as a defender of enduring national values. Of course, the work of international, the international tribunal uh, will be carefully examined for failure to understand national values or norms. Their ability and discernment will be paramount, but one should presume that a fully and judiciously motivated decision reached after painstaking ascertainment of the sources of national law will be accepted by thoughtful nationals as wholly legitimate. If that presumption is not correct, why should one have higher hopes for perceptions of the way an international tribunal applies international norms, like fair and equitable treatment, which, in the view of detractors, are nebulous and therefore ultimately arbitrary. Finally, the international exercise of this authority will never be popular with a government that is insisting on a purported national law impediment to international jurisdiction in particular or on a purported mandatory rule which imposes a solution on the merits. But if international adjudication or arbitration is to be a popularity contest, international lawyers must all seek new employment because that leaves only force and negotiation. Does the world need more law or more politics? Proponents of the rule of law should strive for more durable foundations. Now a few words on why I started thinking about this subject, or to some non-subject. Uh, I had uh, been reading uh, a book which uh, struck me as uh, very thought-provoking. Brian Tamanahas, he's, he's an American uh, legal philosopher, uh, wrote a book three, four years ago called Law as a Means to an End, Threat to the Rule of Law. The entire book is devoted to showing how, when law is, view, is, is used only instrumentally, 
uh, only as a weapon with which competing segments of society win momentary battles, this can lead to the collapse of the rule of law. His last sentence in the book, on this bleak stage, judges are, inverted commas, but another set of combatants. I wondered if arbitrators too, if they simply bow to formal enactments without examining their lawfulness under more fundamental principles of the very national law which they are empowered to apply, might become soldiers in sectarian conflicts. How might they preserve the higher values? When Imagine a particular case of an authoritarian ruler who sees himself as the benevolent dictator of a resource-rich country where many live in poverty. He took power from a government he accuses of having distributed national wealth in a grossly unfair manner. He proclaims a policy of res restributive justice and enjoys passionate popularity among disadvantaged segments of the population. He accuses foreigners of having colluded with formerly powerful national elites. In suit of his policy, he will naturally find it convenient, as he sees fit, to abrogate old treaties, laws, and contracts. His political majority will support him, and so will the legislators and judges he has put into office in what he sees as the high interest. He is likely to have a thorn in his side those who judge him from the outside, precisely international tribunals. He will insist that he respects the rule of law, but by law he means the rules that need to be put into place to further his popular policies. One way for him to tame the authority of international tribunals is pure politics, to lambast the international system as inherently biased and dominated by regressive forces. International judges and arbitrators are easy targets who cannot make effective retort. But another way to fight is with counter law. To neutralize international obligations, why not pass new laws or indeed constitutional amendments forbidding the international adjudication of claims involving the interests of the state? Why not decree the unenforceability of any judgment or award at the international plane that recognizes obligations which he has nullified. Now, such temptations are not new. History has many precursors of such an authoritarian ruler, and international law has reacted. And this is familiar territory. This is not our subject tonight. But you all know what I'm talking about, the corrective features of international law in such circumstances the Vienna Convention of the Law of Treaties, Article 27. A party may not invoke the provision of its internal laws as justification for its failure to, to perform a treaty. International Commissions, 2001, draft articles on state responsibility, similarly set down, it's Article 3. Uh, the wrongfulness of an act is not affected by its characterization of the same as lawful by internal law. Many frequently cited international awards say that international ordre public would react against the purported unilateral revocation of obligations. Bentler in Belgium, Bentler versus Belgium is a familiar case where a German investor 
uh, in Belgium uh, uh, convinced an international tribunal to um, refuse to apply a provision of the Belgian civil code, a relatively high law as the hierarchy goes, uh, which purported to forbid arbitration. Um, Switzerland, uh, just giving you st st uh, stray examples, a venerable seat of international arbitration in 1987 enacted a federal uh, law on private international law, Article 1773, very familiar, adopted this norm as a matter of mandatory Swiss law. Rejecting that a state invoke its own law to refuse the validity of an arbitration agreement. All of those are international corrections. The object of my inquiry in Geneva was to say, hold on, before we go to the international correction, isn't it possible for an international court or tribunal to consider the powerful corrective mechanisms that might exist at the high levels of the hierarchy of the national legal system? International tribunals have no national lex fori. Pierre Meyer and I agree on that, and then we draw wildly different conclusions. International adjudicators are not officials of a state, yet they are routinely called upon to deal with national norms, to acknowledge, to interpret, and to apply them. When they do so, they are not paralyzed by declarations issued by the chief executive, uh, nor by legislators, nor by judges controlled by the executive, nor if an authoritarian ruler has muffled the judiciary, such, should such an abuse of power be allowed to have the effect of neutralizing the authority of international tribunals. Surely this idea must be vital. It might be worthwhile considering the words of one powerful leader, Vladimir Putin, when he castigated Ukraine a few years ago for having asked the Kiev Economic Court to prohibit the transit of Russian gas through Ukrainian territory. Ukraine had violated its legal duty, Putin complained, under the gas transit contracts. Any disagreement should be resolved by international arbitration in Stockholm. He was quoted as saying this, if they keep acting in such a civilized way, the order will never get restored. Yet that is the world of states ruled by authoritarian rulers who don't talk that language as Mr. Putin did that day. International lawyers should have applauded him for insisting on the agreed forum against the Ukrainian version of what national law provided. That's what I said in Geneva. Those were the reasons for my reflections. Um, and they were challenged by Pierre Mayer in an article entitled L'arbitre international et la hiérarchie des normes. I will go no further now because I have just stated my position, but I will say in one sentence what I understood his fundamental objection to be. My proposition, the one which, which, with, with which he takes issue, is that the notion that arbitrators must respect the inherent hierarchy of norms established by the applicable national law, must do so, it's my notion, 
without necessarily concerning themselves with what a judge operating within the legal order in question would, in fact, have done. That's my proposition. That's what Pierre Meyer disagrees with. He says, my conclusion was the fruit of fundamentally erroneous normativist thinking <laughs> and should give way to a realistic a realistic conception of the hierarchical conflict of norms. Inverted commas, but from the French. Before getting into what will have to be a theoretical controversy, let me just state that it may be useful to give a concrete illustration of its practical importance, and then we'll get into the exciting theory. Under Pierre Meyer's view, if the judges of country X do not have the power to review the constitutionality of law, or so it would seem even of executive action. It follows that an arbitral tribunal tasked with applying the law of X may not assess the constitutional position either. By a parity of reasoning, if the law of X directs judges, you heard a couple of examples of where this seems to be the case, directs judges to seek interim rulings from a separate authority with respect to the hierarchy of norms, arbitrators must put themselves in the same position as a matter of realism, suspend their work, and put those questions to that authority. This is what I've understood, and you will now hear more of the Meyer challenge. <coughs> Um, <clears throat> I was not as mean as you said, <laughs> and I won't be tonight. Um, there are at least two points on which we agree. Uh, the first is that the subject is of interest and even of practical interest. Um, and second, that we must distinguish between um, I call it hierarchical conflict within one legal order, that's what we're interested in today, and a conflict between two different legal orders, state legal order and, for instance, international legal order, which is not our subject. Um, in fact, I will say more on Jan's position than he has said it himself. And uh, he already uh, mentioned my position, so we both described the other one's position. Um, my understanding of Jan's position um, is the following. Um, he has two ideas, um, which are not necessarily expressly, expressly uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, he has a certain understanding of the functioning of a legal system. And he has a certain understanding of the mission of an arbitrator. And I would like to look at that more closely. Uh, Jan's position on the first aspect, the functioning of a legal system, appears to me to be very close to Kelsen's uh, theory of a pyramid of norms, although he prefers to cite uh, Santi Romano than, than Kelsen. Um, 
both two authors that we, I think, both love, um, although they totally disagree with, with each other. Um, in that theory, a norm um, is only valid within a legal system if it has been adopted in conformity with a higher norm. Um, the organ, the, the body, uh, parliament, government, or even a court, must have been given competence first or by a higher norm to elaborate norms, lower norms. Uh, second, the, let's say, parliament must have followed the uh, right procedure for adopting the norm, and the right procedure is described by a higher norm. And third, the contents of the norm uh, must be in conformity with higher norms. For instance, if it is uh, if the law voted by the parliament is discriminatory, uh, and there is a higher norm in the constitution that prohibits any discrimination then the law is not valid. It's contrary to a higher norm, it's not valid, or at least it's not applicable. That's what I understood. That seems to be logical at first sight in the presence of a conflict between a lower norm and a higher norm. How could one hesitate? Um, that's what I understand of uh, Jan's position on how a, a legal system functions. Um, how he understands now the arbitrator's mission. Uh, I understand it the following way. Since the arbitrator has exclusive jurisdiction over the disputes, he must form his own views as to which norm to apply and never be guided by the views of the courts of the country whose law is applicable. Hence, uh, three remarkable results at which Jan arrives and with which I totally disagree. Uh, first one, he asked, what if there is no control of constitutionality by the courts of the country? The answer I quote, uh, <clears throat> if a higher norm is acknowledged as fundamental in a legal system, it seems difficult to insist that it has no impact because no national court has been empowered to apply it. That's what Jan in fact mentioned. Uh, uh, five minutes ago. Um, and that is also true uh, even if um, the, the problem with the lower norm is that it was uh, adopted uh, in a violation of the procedure established by the higher norm. The law, for instance, uh, voted by the parliament was not regularly uh, adopted. And, and in that case, uh, quote again, the arbitrator cannot silently bow to a text without ruling on an allegation that it is unlawful under a norm which has a higher status. Um, second issue, what if there is a constitutional court that can only be seized by a court and not by an arbitrator, which uh, is the situation, for instance, in France, now, the answer is, Jan's answer, the arbitral tribunal will rule on this allegation and decide whether the uh, lower norm is or is not in conformity with the higher one. Third issue, what if 
there is a possibility for the arbitrator, uh, pursuant to the law of the country, a possibility for the arbitrator to seize the constitutional court, as is the case in Italy, which constitutional court, which has not yet had the opportunity to decide. Jan's answer, quote, the arbitral tribunal's duty is not to be delegated to the national Conseil Constitutionnel. So it must, the arbitral tribunal must decide by <coughs> itself. Um, so, in fact, uh, the arbitrator must have a total respect for the norms, we could say rules, probably, and their hierarchy. Um, but no respect at all for the position of the courts, no taking into consideration even of the role that the courts have in the country, because it is the arbitral tribunal's jurisdictional duty, that's a quote, to apply the law as it understands it. And it has, uh, it has, the tribunal has been chosen by the parties to the exclusion of the courts of the state, so he has, he must, it must decide itself. I, my approach is different on both points. As to the mission of the arbitrator, I would say first, and I'll come back again to his mission more precisely, that he is essentially free, uh, provided that he applies the law chosen by the parties, uh, or the law he has decided to apply because the parties said nothing, it does not matter how he applies it, which rules it, which it will find applicable within the law, uh, because there is no control over that, except in England when the arbitral tribunal sits in England, and the applicable law is English law, then there is a possibility of an appeal on the interpretation, but more generally, there is no control about the way the law is applied. Uh, and no control means freedom. But freedom does not mean arbitrariness. Um, the arbitrator must make, and that's in fact the challenge of arbitrators. Um, must make the best use of its freedom. Use it, and I quote myself, uh, in conformity with the mission inherent to the function of an arbitrator. And one key aspect of that function is to resolve the dispute first, but in accordance with the reasonable expectations of the parties. That is, of course, rather vague. What do the parties mean when they say the arbitrators will apply French law or will apply English law. What does that mean, French law or English law? What does that mean exactly? And here I turn to my analysis of how a legal system functions. I find Young's dichotomy between the two elements, the rules and the courts, uh, exaggerated, exaggerated. For me, and I think Santi Romano would agree, a system, a legal system, comprises both a system of rules and a body of courts applying the rules in order to solve the disputes. You cannot say, I, arbitrator, look only at the, rule, as the rules as they have been elaborated, and I disregard what the courts have done with these rules, 
how they have construed them, how they have maybe modified them, and how they have made one prevail over another one. In fact, <clears throat> in order to identify the rule effectively in force in a country, you must not, and that's the big difference, in fact I would say between Kelsen and Santi Romano, and realists, because when I say I'm realist, uh, or we must be realist, that's in the philosophical sense and not simply uh, let's be sensible and reasonable. Um, you must, when you try to identify the rule effectively in force in a country, you must not look upstream, as Kelsen does, you must look downstream. You must not ask yourself, was the law correctly elaborated? Is it in conformity with an, a higher norm? You must ask yourself, how is it applied? Has the case law changed its meaning? Has its Suppose lack of conformity with a higher norm caused the courts to refuse to apply it. Or do they continue to apply it either because they do not have a uh, power of control or because they found, maybe wrongly, uh, that it was in conformity with the higher norm. The important issue is not how were the rules elaborated, but how, what, what role do they play actually? And that depends exclusively on what the courts do with them. Or even, and that's the realistic position, uh, on what the courts can be expected to do with them. I take an example. Suppose a rule modifies a previous rule, was adopted by the parliament, but in violation of a higher norm, a treaty or a constitution. But the courts do not denounce the violation and they apply the law, the new rule. Which is the rule in force? Is it the older one, correctly elaborated, or the new one, incorrectly elaborated, but currently applied in spite of that? Obviously for me, it's the second one because it is the one that will serve as a model for the behavior of the subject. And that is the true basis of their predictions, which is the true purpose of the rule of law. And that is what counts for the parties, and I think that is what must count for the arbitrator. Um, the mission of the arbitrator is not to impose the respect of the, the hierarchy of norms within the legal system as it sees it, he sees it, nobody cares. It is to apply the rules that are effectively enforced in the legal system which depends exclusively on the attitude of courts. This approach leads me to adopt solutions in the various hypotheses of conflict, very different from those that Jan adopts. Uh, I must say my approach leads me to more complex distinctions than Jan's approach, which is very simple. He always has to make the higher norm prevail. Um, there are very different situations. Uh, four rather simple one, and two more difficult. 
Um, I'm wondering whether it would not be time now, and I would take the floor again after that, to, to give you the floor as you like. You decide. You're I doing decide. a great job, why don't you keep going? Um, have I not been too long yet? No, um, but we're waiting for the root bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I go on. Um, so first, the four simple situations. In fact, there is one situation which corresponds to a first hypothesis and three other which correspond to a second hypothesis. The first hypothesis is the following. The courts in the country, whose law is applicable, are not empowered to make the higher norm, treaty or constitution, prevail over the law voted by the parliament, which is still the case at least for the problem of constitutionality in many countries. Um, what should be done, I think the arbitral tribunal does not have a greater power than the courts have. Um, because the parties expect him to apply the law that is effectively in force. Um, and they apply the lower norm. So the arbitral tribunal must apply the lower norm. The second hypothesis is the opposite. The courts have the power in the country to make the higher norm prevail either by applying it themselves or by seizing another body, especially a constitutional court, which has the exclusive power to decide. And in that second hypothesis, there are three variants. First one, the courts are empowered to resolve the conflict themselves, but have not had the, the opportunity to do so. What should the arbitral tribunal do? I think the arbitral tribunal must make the higher norm prevail, which was the case in the Portuguese example uh, that I gave. And, uh, and I think on this point, we, we agree. Um, it is incredible that in the SMEG case, which I described, the French case, the uh, arbitral tribunal declared that it had no jurisdiction to solve the conflict. But still, solved the, uh, um, the, the decided the merits of the case. And that was accepted by the Court of Appeal of Paris and by the Court of Cassation for reasons uh, which I cannot guess. Um, second situation, the courts have the power to seize the constitutional court, have not yet had the opportunity to do, to do so on the specific issue. Uh, and in the country, uh, pursuant to the law of the country, the arbitral tribunal has the same power. It should use it. It should seize the court. That is even mandatory in Italy um, through a decision of the constitutional court, Italian constitutional court at least when the seat of the tribunal is in Italy. And on this point, we disagree, Jan and I. Um, but I would say, for me, it's more reasonable to think that the parties that have chosen Italian law consider that the best assessment of the conformity of Italian law to the Italian constitution is that given by the Italian 
constitutional court rather than by an English, a French, and a Swiss arbitrators. Um, third situation, among the simple ones, the last of the simple ones, the court or the constitutional court have already decided the point. Uh, one way or the other, I think the arbitral tribunal should follow that uh, view. More precisely, if the lower norm was declared <coughs> valid by a civil court or by the constitutional court, it should be held valid. If it was declared null, it should be uh, considered null. Um, if, the, uh, if a civil court, that's more de delicate, if a civil court refused to apply the lower norm because it found it contrary to the Constitution, um, maybe the arbitrator is not always bound because if it's the uh, Supreme Court, yes, reasonably it should abide by the decision. But if it's a uh, first instance tribunal of a small city uh, which obviously erred, uh, I think the arbitrator can say uh, that's not really uh, the law of the, that country and there will soon be uh, a different uh, decision. But of course that, that's more difficult. If the constitutional court abrogated the uh, law, which is I think uniquely the French solution, um, then uh, the arbitrator must be consider must consider the law abrogated. But if the situation which he has to decide was uh, uh, had appeared before the abrogation, since abrogation is not retroactive, uh, the arbitrator should apply the law. Um, now the difficult situation I see two. Uh, the first one. Um, the courts and the arbitral tribunals have the power to solve hierarchic conflicts, but the higher court is very vague. What, one example taken from a QPC. A law has been adopted limited to, limiting to six months the time period to file a claim based on tort. And it is alleged before the arbitrator, that it is contrary to the fundamental right to have an effective recourse to justice because the period is too short. What should the arbitral tribunal do? Uh, effective recourse to justice, that's very vague, and it's a matter of subjective interpretation. Uh, I tend to think that uh, there is a presumption that the law, this six-month uh, time period, is in conformity with the higher values of the legal system because the lawmaker, the parliament or the government, is supposed to have respected these values and supposed to have respected uh, the higher norm, having interpreted it reasonably um, in the framework of the legal system. So why should the arbitrator impose its own subjective views uh, on this point. But that's also a very difficult uh, situation. Um, and the last one 
is the following. The arbitral tribunal does not have the power to seize the constitutional court, which has exclusive power to decide whether a law is in conformity with the Constitution or not. Uh, that's the situation in French law present at present, uh, Spanish law, Italian law, at least if the seat is in Italy. Uh, I think in that case the arbitrator should apply the lower norm because he doesn't have the power. The power is reserved to the constitutional court and it cannot seize it. That's, um, that's my view. Of, not of Jan's position only, but of how I see the problem, and which is now going to be totally destroyed by Jan. We're going to ask Jan to respond, and then we're going to throw it open to the floor for your contributions and questions. Well, I thought I'd uh, try to ingratiate myself uh, with the audience by saying that nobody's going to win this debate and you all, to the extent you think about these things, develop your own thoughts about it and it's likely that there are 50, there will be 50 opinions in the room which none, not one of which is, is exactly like that of Pierre Mayer or myself. But at this moment, um, if you think about these things, you heard the question uh, and let that resonate. It's Pierre Mayer's question, and it's mine as well. What counts for the parties? We are talking about international jurisdictions, courts or tribunals, who per force have authority because the litigants have given them jurisdiction, have given, have given them jurisdiction to apply a national law. And I say all of it. If you feel, the good students and the good lawyers here, you feel somewhat uh, unmoored by the nebulousness of what you're hearing because Pierre and I have thought more about this than some of you have until this moment. Uh, you might be anxious to run off to the library and get some proper concrete English authority on these questions. Surely this is not so new that it hasn't been dealt with in some way which will uh, satisfy your curiosity and you'll quickly come up with something less nebulous. I've done it for you and the news is not good. Uh, in fact, it's a point. If I make make a timeout for two minutes. There is no particular advantage in trying to seek to invoke the historical practice of national courts with respect to conflicts of laws. In the first place, the modern consensus is that the national law, which a tribunal may be charged with applying, does not include the conflict of law rules, because that would paradoxically lead away from the rules which the, those who accept the tribunal's jurisdiction intended to be governing. Of course, if national conflicts of law rules had uniformly embraced Pierre Mayer's version of realism, it would be legitimate to be attentive to that uniformity and its rationale. However, there is no such uniformity. Indeed, national law examples appear to have arisen so infrequently that the position seems difficult to determine. For example, in England, where the courts examine conflict of laws issues frequently and in great depth. The venerable and compendious Dicey and Morris refers not to a single case on point, but only to a German professorial essay, which is invoked for the equivocal proposition that it is, quote, doubtful whether courts can determine a question as to the constitu constitutionality or vires of foreign legislation. 
But I would like to go one step beyond that and suggest that the situation of a national court, which by virtue of jurisdictional rules finds itself acting in the place of the courts of another nation, is quite different from international courts and tribunals, which are intended as an alternative, not as a facsimile. I found a note in English literature, published nearly half a century ago by Kurt Lipstein, who looked at what he then termed a special problem which has attracted little attention, he said. Namely, how to ascertain whether a foreign rule, once determined to exist, is valid or invalid according to the overriding principles of the foreign constitution. <coughs> the hypothetical example he posited illustrates the fundamental difference between the situation of national judges considering how a foreign law should be applied and that of international adjudicators. Lipstein imagined that there was a very clear and relevant rule in Ruritanian laws as to matrimonial property, but that this rule was argued by one party to violate a Ruritanian constitutional principle of the equality of the sexes. Such a situation generally involves parties whose status and whose acts on the ground have brought them within the purview of the applicable law and for that very reason also within the scope of the authority of officials of the relevant state. There is, we expect, no conscious choice of the regime under and by which they will be judged. Indeed, it may be said that their legitimate expectations are that they would be treated in the Ruritanian manner. The happenstance that it falls upon a different foreign state to judge the case is the consequence not of a choice of the parties, not what counts for them, but the consequence of some subsequent event, perhaps a change of domicile. The forum state does not seek to give them something different. It is but the agency by which a Ruritanian solution is given effect. And that's the background <coughs> I submit of the Meyer view of a conflictualist uh, 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 vision of the hierarchy of, of rules. Lipstein referred to a few actual cases uh, from in comparative law, which involved the exercise of state power against the property of foreigners, such as by expropriation or abandonment of a hard currency standard for the repayment of bonds. Here, too, the applicability of the regime underlying the governmental act was the consequence of the foreigners' actions, acquiring property there or buying the bonds with the actual or constructive expectation that that regime would be governing his entitlement and his prospects. The courts of another nation seeking or asked to determine the legality of the act under the law of the foreign state, not under international law, not under the forum's public policy, has no mission to devise anything but the Ruritarian treatment. Do you want to call that realism? It's the conflictualist approach. It's a very different matter when parties expressly stipulate the protection of a neutral jurisdiction be it by a commercial contract or a contract of marriage, and all the more so when one which is not a national organ owing deference, as it were, to those of a fellow state. Now back to the heart of my debate with Pierre Mayer. We share a common premise, and I've heard it again confirmed. 
an international adjudicator, an arbitrator, who applies the law of a state does not become a part of the legal order or system of that state by virtue of that mission. We agree. And then we draw vastly different conclusions. From this common premise, I said in Geneva that my inference was that an arbitrator in this situation is not reduced to limiting himself to the exercise of whatever authority a judge of that state might have, so that the arbitrator is neither precluded from assessing the conformity of a statute or a decree to a higher rule or norm, nor required to refer the matter to some other national authority, even if the judge would be so precluded or required. The result is that the arbitrator should indeed have no hesitation in respecting the manner in which the applicable law itself prioritizes its rules. Pierre Meyer's inference is different. It is to the effect that the arbitrator, being external to the national legal order in question, is not subject to its rules or principles governing the conflict of norms, which are imposed on all of its organs. I'll say that again. The arbitrator, he says, being external to the national legal order in question is not subject to the rules or principles governing the conflict of norms which are imposed on all of its organs, of which the arbitrator is not one. For Pierre Maillard, two consequences follow. First, the arbitrator need not give effect to the priorities of the applicable law. One can see the logic of that proposition. Secondly, the arbitrator should ignore them if, in fact, the norm proclaimed to be higher is not given effect by the organs of the state. I see no logic here whatsoever. And I will argue that it's an unpersuasive ipsy dixit. Is it possible that my friend Pierre Mayer had an a priori preferred outcome? and reverse engineered his analysis to fit it. Certainly his preference is in plain view. It is at the heart of his objection to the Milo Leave lecture, namely that its inference was not realistic in the sense that it focused on the source rather than the function of norms. This function, he maintains, and we've heard it again, is to regulate the relations of people who live in a given society irrespective of whether the norms have, have been generated in compliance with formal constitutional process. He uses the word dispositions. Dispositions that regulate behavior are, by definition, rules. An anti-constitutional rule that is nevertheless applied by courts will serve to direct the behavior of individuals. That's a fact that should be noted, and that's how the law should be apprehended by somebody charged with applying it. He goes on to say that to determine whether a rule exists, one should not look, the words again you heard this evening, upstream. One should not look upstream. One should not look to the process by which it was created, but downstream, asking oneself what rule it effectively plays in society. This role depends, I quote my translation from the French, this role depends almost exclusively on the attitudes of the courts because their decisions are what determines the rights and obligations of individuals. Their decisions are what determines the rights and obligations of individuals. What do you think of that? 
so it seems, an arbitrator applying a given law must predict whether the courts of the relevant country apply a given rule in order to determine whether it exists. Even if a law is contrary to a hierarchically superior norm, the law must be applied as written if the national legal system in question does not allow judges to question its constitutional legality. In other words, to be applicable, the purported higher law must be a truly effective norm in that legal order in question. Effectivement en vigueur en ce droit. It is therefore, he concludes, nonsense to say that an international judge or arbitrator applying French law should reject a French parliamentary decree as contrary to the French constitution if the courts of France do not have the authority, that authority, the authority to, do, to reject under French law. The chinks in the armor of this argument are evident to me, but I may be alone. The first weakness in, Pierre, in, the, in the conclusion that Pierre Mayer draws from uh, the uh, arbitrator's non-status as a state organ. The conclusion to be drawn from the non-status as a state organ. As I just said, his twin inference is that the arbitrator need not feel bound by the nation's hierarchy of norms, all the while insisting that the same arbitrator is burdened by the same limitations as those resulting from the internal allocation of authority among national uh, organs of the state. That's not only a bare assertion, but inconsistent, it seems to me, on its face. If anything, one would think, the mandate to apply a body of norms is more likely to require adherence to the hierarchy of norms than to the attribution of authority resulting from an internal regime for the judiciary in which the arbitrator has no place. When Pierre Mayer insists that it is possible to separate the system of rules and the judicial apparatus which together form the legal order, which he chastised me for uh, a few minutes ago for not being sufficiently sensitive to, it is possible, he says, to separate the system of rules and the judicial apparatus. apparatus. I object that this observation seems a matter of mere taxonomy which leads nowhere in conceptual terms. Courts and tribunals are not asked to apply a legal order, but a law. The notion that one can apply a national law only if one also qualifies under its, if, if one also qualifies its substantive provisions by reference to the way in this, in the way in which those provisions may be affected by the way decision-making power is or is not allocated uh, in the judiciary seems entirely open to doubt. The better view, I suggest, is that the international judge or arbitrator applying the ultimate national norm enshrined in the Constitution should put aside subordinate questions as to the internal attribution of authority to decide controversies with regard to the applicability of such and, and, and the tenor of such ultimate norms. If a higher norm is acknowledged as fundamental in a legal system, it seems wrong in principle for an arbitral tribunal to insist 
that it has no impact because no national court has been empowered to apply it. The parties chose not to go to that national court for a reason. What counts for the parties who created the jurisdiction? Ultimately, it seems to me, Pierre's thesis stands or falls on our belief in the supremacy of what he calls realism. It implies an unattractive distinction between two types of national law. On the one hand, a controversy subject to the laws of a country where there is judicial constitutional review. That is to say, a law deemed to be deficient by the standard of, by the, standard of the higher norm. On the other hand, a party subject to a law like that of France, before the reform of 2010 for certain, where courts themselves cannot disregard laws even if they are in principle unconstitutional. So those courts would be defeated by an illegal law. But Pierre would say they're not illegal laws because his realistic views impels him to accept that the rule obeyed, the rule which is obeyed, is the true reflection of law. This disturbs me on two grounds. One, that rules imposed by whomever is in, is in a position to promulgate them must be considered legal. And two, that the selection of an applicable law may lead to wholly unpredictable results. Finally, an unappealing consequence, it seems to me, of Pierre's approach arises specifically with regard to the development of international law. If we imagine that this notion of realism in the name of consistency might also be applied to our perspectives for the development of international law. The notion that courts and tribunals should consider that international law is what is effectively in vigor leads to a path strewn with dangers. There is no unitary international judiciary, even less a unitary legislature. The voyage of the realist would require him to traverse a dense wilderness in which it would take superhuman skills to distinguish substance and solid ground from mirages and quicksand. Competing claims as to what is the effective law would depend on the observations and perspectives of each traveler, a redoubtable handicap to the constitution of a corpus of law. Compounding this difficulty is the fact that states have historically been adamant that international law uh, is, uh, is something which is not uh, in integrated in any uh, system of conflicts of laws. Final observation on the Smeg case. Uh, the Belgian buyer was disqualified by an act of French, of French authorities. So said the seller who no longer wanted to deliver. The Belgian buyer brought an arbitration, an arbitration against the French seller. The French seller said, I am excused because you are no longer qualified. A decision of a French authority has disqualified you under the Code Royal. The Belgian disappointed claimant says, please, that action by the French government was illegal under European law. Now, the way that case ends up, I entirely agree with Pierre Mayer. 
uh, is quite unsatisfactory because of the uh, shadows in which uh, that case seems to have been pleaded and, and argued before the various jurisdictions of France. But I note that Pierre Mayer nevertheless commented on the case and said two things which struck me as relevant today. He noted that a judge must rule on the conformity of a national administrative act to European law. Not controversial. We know that, as, as he acknowledged, we've known that since 1978 and the European Court's decision in the Simenthal II judgment. But then he said, what a civil judge may and should do, an arbitrator may do as well. So now we know that an arbitrator may decide, without reference to anybody, whether a higher norm can defeat the excuse of force majeure by reference to an act of a French governmental official, which the Belgian buyer says is an illegal act. Pierre Mayer says, that's okay, because what is being asked, act of the arbitrator, is to decide something which is without recourse to the subjective views of the interpreter. That decision by the arbitrator would be without recourse to his subjective views because he's referring to uh, European law. Now it seems to me, and I will be interested in Pierre's answer, that he has introduced a new element into his rejection of the idea of the application of the highest norms that are applicable within a legal system by warning that the, you should not accept that an arbitrator would apply superior values because that exercise is necessarily subjective, as opposed to it's okay to apply European law because that is without recourse to the subjective views of, it, of the interpreter. To introduce that distinction, which is new, I think, since uh, our discussion of the Lalive lecture, is a considerable step away from Pierre Mayer's earlier existence, his strict adherence to realism and seemingly puts the author in the position of having to say that applying European law involves no subjective judgments. Thank you very much. We'll now have um, questions from you. I hope Oliver Wendell Holmes is in the audience, but I will give Pierre a right of reply after we had a few questions first. So uh, subject to that, who would like to start? Yes, sir, at the back. If you could state your name yes, and your affiliation. <laughs> Adam Samuel, uh, Jan, you mentioned Article 177 of the LDIP, which of course is unconstitutional. You do know that, don't you? <laughs> you uh, the, when the LDIP <laughs> was passed in Switzerland, um, it was pretty well known. Well, the Constitution said very clearly matters of procedure were exclusively for the cantons, a fact that had been decided by the Supreme Court also in 1915. And so what your thesis would actually entail is quite interesting. Would mean an arbitrator sitting in Switzerland right now, or perhaps before a recent change in the law, the Constitution actually, faced with an arbitration agreement made by an exchange of emails not signed by the parties, the arbitrator would have to decline jurisdiction on the basis that under the Concordat, the relevant cantonal law, 
the arbitration agreement was formally invalid, even though it would have been valid under the other bit of Article 177. And the nonsense of which proposition might suggest a bit of a problem, because of course in Swiss constitutional law, the courts cannot declare a law passed by the parliament to be invalid. I mean, that's just a basic observation. Now let's go back a second. Um, the real answer to the question that really divides you is what do parties really expect? When many of the early arguments were presented about the Lex Mercatoria, a lot of law professors said that parties wanted this wonderful new standard. And actually, the parties voted with their feet. They chose municipal laws with ever greater frequency when this became a practice of ICC arbitrators where no law had been chosen. And I suspect the real answer to the question would probably be found amongst the users of arbitration as to which brand of law they really thought they were buying. The law, as I suspect, that is probably the Pierre Mayer version. But I don't think you can go around arguing that we have to uh, apply the Constitution to laws quite as comfortably as you're indicating, Jan, because if you do that, you could actually disrupt a lot of perfectly good laws that happen to be unconstitutional. And personally, I think there is more than adequate protection from the obvious public policy exclusion of the otherwise applicable law. Thank you. We'll, we'll collect a few more comments and questions before giving it to the speakers. Somebody else with a question or a comment? Yes, sir. Over there. I'm very sorry. The microphone has to go all the way over. <coughs> It's coming. No, I think it's going to come by hand. Thank you very much for this very interesting um, debate. Forgive me, we need your name and affiliation oh, yeah, first. Sure. Uh, my name is Barakdin McCall. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. Um, so I have a question not on unlawful laws, but lawful laws which are not applied for years in a uh, country. Let's say that uh, there is a law enacted in 1930s or 40s, but uh, not applied after um, uh, 1960s or 70s, but it's still in legislation, but like simply courts do not apply that. So what I understand from um, Jan Paulson version, an arbitrator shall apply that law because it doesn't care about uh, national judges' uh, perspective or understanding of law. And what I can understand from Pierre Maynard's version is that um, so it's not, it won't be realistic to apply that law because um, it's, it doesn't exist anymore in, the, um, uh, in that legal order, although it exists let's say, legally. Thank you very much. We'll have one more comment and question. Yes, please, over there. And then we'll come to them. My name's Andrew Clark, I work at ExxonMobil. Uh, there was a question about what the users would be interested in. And I think in most cases, the users are interested in certainty. My concern is that Pierre Maillard's description of how you get to a legal uh, conclusion involves much more uncertainty than the buyers might expect. They refer an issue to arbitrators because they want the arbitrators to determine the legal situation, the facts, and come up 
question to Pierre is, in the event you had uh, a national law which said any form of uh, discrimination against foreign investors is entirely legal and shall not be constituted, shall not be counted as discrimination, notwithstanding the international investor treaty obligations that country has entered into, what then happens when discrimination occurs and a claim for expropriation is made? It seems to me, based on Pierre's analysis, the arbitrator will be required to apply that legal, that law, notwithstanding the treaty, which puts a lower norm above the higher norm, the investor with no effective recourse. It would clearly be very important. And it's not only bad for the investors, it's bad for international investment uh, overall. We have a microphone down here with Mr. Craig will make a very pertinent observation. And then... Um, Paul Craig, Harris, arbitrator. Uh, this is a question for, for Jan. Uh, speak loud, Lord. This is, a, this is a question for Jan. I noticed that you don't seem to make any distinction between commercial arbitration and investment arbitration, and yet you refer to the powers, exceptional powers of the International Arbitral Tribunal. In a commercial arbitration case, what makes these tribunals international? And looking at it another way, from the expectation of the parties when they entered into a contract to have these arbitrators decide a dispute, is it reasonable to think that they intended to give this body a power to rule upon the constitutionality of an internal law that they agreed to apply when Many, many countries don't give the highest courts of the land uh, that power. Is that a reasonable expectation? We're going to give the floor first to Pierre Maillet, who will answer specifically and generally, and then we'll pass the microphone to Jan for that answer. Um, I'll make a few answers to Jan first. <laughs> Only a few, because uh, I counted 15 arguments <laughs> And I couldn't even write it down, so uh, I do not have the answers to all of them. Uh, so just a few remarks. Um, the first one is that uh, it's an interesting uh, parallel that can be made, and, and uh, Jan made it, uh, between the position of an arbitra international arbitrator uh, and the position of a court which has to apply a foreign law. And that parallel has at least that second situation has been uh, studied, I understood by Kurt Liebstein, Liebstein, sorry, we're in England, uh, and, uh, and also by Henri Batifol. Uh, and uh, the answer by Henri Batifol was that what the uh, court had to do was to apply the foreign law which was actually in force, which was in fact the law considered as the law in the country, as the applicable law. So we, we are in agreement, uh, Henri Batifol and, and myself. Um, second uh, 
remark. Uh, I totally agree with uh, Adam Samuel, and also with the gentleman who spoke afterwards, um, that what is essential is the expectations of the parties. And which is of our two positions, the one that respects better the uh, expectations of the parties. Um, I think it's mine, of course. <laughs> um, because um, it's probably very difficult to guess what an arbitrator will, or how the arbitrator will resolve the conflict. While if you already have a solution or the possibility to seize a court, the constitutional court in the country, uh, you will know exactly uh, what the answer will be. And there will be no room for arbitrariness. Um, I have an additional uh, argument, which you may find unfair, but still. Um, what convinces me that the uh, expectations of the parties are not well satisfied by your theory is the reaction of the Geneva audience. They were all against you. <laughs> all practitioners of arbitration. They didn't like it. Um, yeah, that, that is nasty. <laughs> that is nasty. Um, about, I was struck by an argument. Uh, I think it's a sophism, but uh, difficult to tackle, about the inconsistency of my position, because uh, in my position, I don't pay any respect to the way the conflicts are solved in the, uh, in the applicable law, while I find myself bound as an arbitrator to uh, abide by the, uh, the position of this uh, legal order uh, concerning the role of the courts. And not only that, but as an arbitrator, I should behave exactly as the same way as a court. Um, in fact, there is no inconsistency. Uh, I'm not saying that the arbitrator is bound by the uh, solutions uh, in the uh, applicable law about the role of courts. I'm simply saying that the arbitrator must apply the law as it is applied in the country whose law is applicable which is, I think, common sense. Um, uh, last remark. Um, yes. In fact, in fact, Kelsen would disagree with you. Because he was confronted with the problem that he has this uh, hierarchy of norms, this pyramid, and a, a, a law is only valid if the, if the higher norm uh, has been respected, let's say, and if he has received competence to, uh, if the organ has received competence to uh, issue the law. But he knows that in certain countries there is no control of constitutionality. So is the law that was um, voted by an incompetent parliament. Normally it's not valid in uh, Kelsen's theory, but still he sees that it's applied by the courts, 
which cannot control the constitutionality. So he, I think, uh, he finds a, a way to solve the problem. He says, in fact, the law, although irregularly adopted, is still valid. Why? Because in the Constitution, you have two rules. First, the uh, Parliament only has a certain competence, a limited one, and in this case, uh, he went out of its uh, competence. But there's another rule in the Constitution, which is that still, since there is no control of constitutionality, uh, what the law did is valid, because it cannot be controlled. And that's based on the Constitution, on a, a implicit norm, but necessary, necessary norm in the Constitution. Um, I agree that that's not extremely convincing, but still, Kelsen uh, realized that he had to do something for uh, norms or laws irregularly adopted, and that they were valid still. Uh, on this Meg uh, uh, case, um, what I said about the subjective judgment and that an arbitrate arbitrator could, should uh, avoid uh, saying that a law is contrary to uh, the Constitution or to a treaty uh, if that would rest really on its subjective judgment uh, which may be different from the judgment of the legislator uh, that it was not new, that was in my Hague general course but I understand you may not have uh, read it. That page. That page. Um, of course, you have to make distinctions sometimes. You said it yourself. Uh, that's the key problem for jurists. Uh, if it's, if a, a law is very clearly contrary to a very precise uh, rule in the Constitution, uh, the uh, contradiction is uh, obvious, then there is no reason why not to take it into account if that is possible under the law of the country. Uh, when it's extremely vague and, and supposes a subjective understanding of what is um, access to the courts, free access to the courts, for instance, uh, then I think you can introduce its prudent to introduce a presumption that the law did what it had to do. The law knew what the concept, the vague concept, meant for it, and so the law was regularly adopted. Uh, now to the questions. Uh, there was a question about uh, desuetude. Uh, that's the French word. A law that is never applied, has not been applied for decades or, or centuries. Um, I have no, no view about that. That's a question of positive law of one country or another country. In some countries, the law is still there and it can still be applied even after centuries. We still apply in France the decree of Villers-Cotterêts, adopted in 1560-something. Very rarely, but we, we apply it. It has been applied recently. 
In other countries, you would consider that there is desuetude, that means the law has disappeared. Uh, what I say is only that the arbitrator should decide the case uh, as a court in the country would have done, depending on whether desuetude is admitted or not in the country whose law is applicable. As to the uh, last remark, I, of course, disagree. Uh, but I think your example uh, is an example of a conflict between a law and a treaty. And that's different. And of course, if uh, an arbitral uh, tribunal, for instance, ICSID, has to decide a case under a BIT, or an investment treaty, of course, uh, it has to make the treaty prevail. But we, I'm agree in agreement with you. That is all. Thank you very much. And now Jan. Okay. There were some very profound questions uh, raised, and I will give some shallow answers. <laughs> First of all, Pierre, uh, the audience in Geneva was not against me. They were against us. <laughs> they thought this was a non-subject. They thought that this was catered for by just cogents and overriding international public policy, and if there were... If, if there had been overreaching by the executive branch of governments or the legislature or the courts were subservient, this could be handled by overriding international norms. And so what in the world was I talking about? Uh, I was suggesting that when you apply a national norm, the national norms has its own corrective uh, uh, elements, and those are not coterminous with the international ones, obviously. They might be less radical than the international ones. The threshold might be lower. And therefore, it might, for a tribunal, be less unpalatable for it to say, I am doing this in application of your own national law. I'm not coming in as an international tribunal uh, 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 correcting your system. I'm actually trying to understand what your system is. It has temporarily been put out of balance. Um, Pierre uh, and I have no difficulty with desuetude at all uh, if uh, it was put that uh, if there is some old law in the books uh, of constitutional provision that hasn't been applied for a century, um, in my vision, because it's on the books, an international adjudicator would apply it because he doesn't care what the court said. I don't think I said that. Um, I don't have any difficulty with desuetude at all. Of course, the international adjudicator cares what courts say. Um, if you were listening carefully, I took the two extremes of a venerable line of jurisprudence, which for generations has held a particular proposition to be correct, or has ignored a provision in the Constitution to the effect that slavery is a form of property which is entitled to, 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 to protection and none of the courts of that country have applied it. Well, there's no difficulty in saying that that is no longer a constitutional provision. No difficulty whatsoever here, I think uh, we, will, we will agree. Which brings me to um, a point which I'm uh, quite eager to make. Uh, my subject is one which is in the background of understanding what ultimately the system of international adjudication can bring about. It should happen, one expect, once in a blue moon. No, parties that agree to um, arbitration uh, of a particular, uh, under a particular law, 
don't, don't automatically agree that arbitrators willy-nilly can, can reach all kinds of decisions about constitutionality. Certainly not if a party claims that a legal provision which was in existence on the day of the contract, subsequently they want some arbitrator to say that was unconstitutional, though it's never been held that way under the laws of the court. It's quite outlandish. Uh, what I am thinking about are extreme circumstances, which are less likely to happen if it is understood that international tribunals have this power. So when, um, well, think of 1975-1977 in India. Indira Gandhi decides that the courts are bucking her reforms in a way which she cannot tolerate. And she decrees emergency laws. She, ha she controls parliament to the extent that she can change the constitution, and she does. And a law is enacted, which is the type, the law of a level which is entitled to effect change of the constitution. And it contains, easy, this constitutional law, quote, shall not be called into question in any court on any ground. That's what the Indian constitution said for a while in the mid-1970s. An international arbitral tribunal, having been empowered to apply Indian law, having been given that power before this iniquitous uh, law was passed, I would say, should apply Indian law the way it had understood, considering that, even though it's purportedly formally a constitutional enactment, goes against higher values of Indian law. That's what the Indian Supreme Court was to say a couple of years later. So these are for the extreme cases and not to be considered something which is, which is to be done lightly. And I, 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 I'm happy for the occasion to clarify that. Uh, what makes um, a commercial tribunal international? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think I said that. Uh, I, I, I didn't get into the idea of commercial tribunals being international or not. The proposition is that arbitrators are not organs of the national state, and therefore are not part of the legal system. That is all. That's the initial premise, and the question is which way you go uh, having, having articulated that premise. Uh, certainly, uh, arbitrators in, um, uh, in the investment framework where they have a treaty behind them have explicit provisions of international law which they can refer to. But anybody else who adjudicates dispute under certain circumstances can also invoke uh, international public policy again in extreme circumstances. Uh, but once again, my entire discussion today is looking at things that are not, uh, um, that, that are not part of the international corrective mechanisms. Um, can, I, can I interrupt you there, Ian, because I'm not sure that completely answers Laurie Craig's question. Just imagine uh, a factual situation where you're an Indian arbitrator in an Indian arbitration sitting in New Delhi and you're applying the applicable law, which is agreed by the parties to be Indian law, and during the arbitration, Indira Gandhi brings in an amendment which materially affects the result, or the likely result, in those arbitration proceedings. Now, you can say you're not part of the integral Indian legal system, but that's not the way the Indian legal system looks at you. What do you do? Having regard to the welfare of my family, I think I would become a Maya realist in those circumstances. 
It's not an idle question. I've just been injuncted by the Indian <laughs> Supreme Court, and the indignity is that it's not an injunction. The arbitration proceedings have been stayed. Let's just think about that. It's quite clear that they think we're part of the Indian legal system, but at the bottom of the pyramid, they don't injunct us. They simply stay our proceedings because we're Indians. It's a bad badge of honor among okay. national arbitrators to be injuncted in certain places. Uh, just uh, a couple of um, additional points. The expectations of, of, of the parties, I think it's very important to emphasize, we're talking about ex-ante expectations, of course. Because once the event has occurred, whatever it is, you will find some users violently in my camp. And in other circumstances, the opposite. This is just, this is just a matter of, 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 of uh, what one wants in the outcome. So ex ante, when you enter into inter an international contractual relationship, international promises are given with the intention that be, they be relied upon. Uh, and uh, that framework, including at a constitutional level, uh, is effectively like a rug being pulled out of the feet of those who drafted the contract, who are now disavowed on both sides. That is something I believe that international uh, uh, arbitrators can do something about. International understood as people who are not part of the legal system and looking at it to that extent from the outside in the way that both Pierre Mayer and I agree and with, the, with a Vieter caveat about realism in certain circumstances. Um, Article 1773 of the Swiss Private International Law Act has a tenor which has been consistently applied by international tribunals as far as I know for three decades without any other outcome than that one. So I think it's a good example. That's all. We have time for two or three more questions. Yes, please, at the back. Can we have a microphone over there? I know who you are, but please give your name and your affiliation. Thank you. Malice Malik from 12 Grayson Square. I'm taken by Mr. Samir's comments that an Arbitrary Tribunal should act as a court and apply the civil and leaving aside the city questions I was talking about in civil court. If that is the case, is it a court of first instance or is it a supreme or a constitutional court? Because if it's the former, then of course it should, should show deference to uh, more superior courts. And certainly it's not its place to be deciding questions of constitutionality. If it's a adding to the Supreme Court, then I take it to the point to some extent that it can have the right to decide more superior questions of whether uh, a law meets constitutional expectation. The answer, in my mind, one way I think of looking at it, depends on which convention applies in terms of enforcing the arbitration board. If it's a New York convention, then the award is subject to review on certain grounds, including public policy. So certainly that arbitration tribunal cannot hold itself out to be as superior as the Supreme Court. If it is the exit convention, subject to a contract, for example, and I'm leaving treaty questions aside, which has a national law stipulated in it, then that award cannot be questioned. And that tribunal becomes more powerful. So I'd be very grateful for any comments um, to gentlemen.
not sure I have entirely understood uh, the question. Uh, you mentioned public policy. Uh, so you, you refer to the, the problem of the recognition of the award? Yes. So it's, not, it's not the problem. I think the point is that as an arbitral tribunal whose award is enforceable under the New York Convention, it's not a bulletproof award as such. It can still be reviewed by a Supreme Court. And therefore, somehow, between the ICSA tribunal and the New York arbitration, let's say an Amsterdam tribunal, the ICSA tribunal is more powerful and more active, or able to act as a Supreme Court. Yes. Well, um, I I'm not even sure that uh, for a tribunal not to have respected uh, the higher norm, uh, that makes the award necessarily contrary to public policy. Public policy uh, uh, protects values, and that's not necessarily the case. And uh, that's independent, of, uh, in fact, of uh, whether the higher court was respected or not, because even if it was respected, maybe the higher uh, norm uh, will be considered contra contrary to public policy. Uh, seen by the court in which recognition is sought. So I think these are two different problems, but maybe uh, Jan has uh, something no, else this, to say. This, this is a problem entirely for you. Entirely for me. Problem. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's, let's have another question, because I think we've got a questioner over there. Yes, please. Microphone right in the middle. Morris Mendelssohn, Blackstone Chambers. Um, I've got two, I think, somewhat overlapping points. The first one is I think it might help discourse if so-called international commercial arbitrators were called something like plurinational commercial arbitrators because they're not there to apply international law. Those who are there to apply international law are applying also, I would suggest, perhaps um, a different law which they're empowered to apply rather than a higher. I think just this would clarify the discourse but my main point is this. I think that, to some extent, perhaps, Jan's argument overlooks the appropriate modesty of arbitrators. What, what kind of degree of modesty would be appropriate for them? If you take, admittedly, a somewhat extreme case where a national constitutional court has ruled X, then somebody, a polyglot and a polymath Renaissance man like Jan might say, well, they're wrong, you know, um, I know better, and like Ronnie Dworkin could apply this higher law. Um, but the rest of us poor mortals, I think we have to recognize, first of all, we're foreigners to that legal system. We haven't been educated in that legal system. I know from experience, and many of you will know, that if you read a law of a foreign country, you might think you understand it, but you don't necessarily understand it. I remember having uh, a long dis debate with Pierre-Marie, where we couldn't understand why we were disagreeing on behalf of the client about something. Turned it out, turned out we understood the word rescission in different ways. They have different connotations in English law and French law. So I think that if an arbitrator has to apply foreign law, then he or she should show appropriate modesty where uh, the, the Supreme Constitutional Court of the country, or maybe even its Court of Appeal, um, has made a decision and not 
uh, try to go behind it. Now, if you're an in, uh, in an international tribunal, you've got other means. You can say, well, this is contrary to a treaty if there's a bit. If there isn't a bit and you're in ICSID, you can say, well, there's still contract and such rules of international law as may be applicable, which opens the door to legitimate expectations, all sorts of stuff. If you're simply a multinational arbitral uh, group of people, um, you're operating under, a, uh, you're applying a certain body of law, and so far as the uh, is it possible, permissible to do so, you could apply concepts like public policy, but that's a much more limited operation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've almost come to the end of your time, so I'm going to give the floor to Jan to finish on a happy note. Yes, well, the, the um, appropriate modesty is extreme modesty, Maurice, I think. Uh, somebody read my uh, leave lecture and did, uh, did say, watch out, People will, uh, people will wonder when next you put the word Hercules in here, uh, which is a reference to Dworkin's, uh, precisely Dworkin's idea of, of the adjudicator who knows everything. Uh, no, th these are for extreme circumstances. Um, we already know that there is an international corrective that can come into play, including in commercial arbitrations where international law per se, treaties and international law, don't have a direct application, but they apply through the national law, which is applicable itself. And there, there are precedents uh, where, where that occurs. So in almost all situations that you would expect, if the National Supreme Court has said this is the law, that's the law, and the international adjudicator would simply take note. But contrary situations might occur depending on when that decision uh, took place, uh, under what circumstances, uh, what had been happening to the judges in that country, how many are languishing in prisons, and how many were named the week before the decision was expected. There comes a point uh, when uh, uh, the honest adjudicator rebels at the realism uh, of the day. So ultimately, it seems to me that we can, we can say this. We know already that there is a possibility of an international corrective to anything that national actors do. That's positive law. There is an international corrective. Um, denial of justice, for example, doesn't care whether the agent of the state that has acted is the executive or the parliament or the judiciary. My only inquiry is whether it isn't possible for a tribunal which is outside the agency of the state system having been empowered by the parties that gave them jurisdiction to apply the national law, are not entitled to apply all of that law, including its own corrective features. That's the question I started with, and that's where I am. Well, thank you, Ian, and thank you all, too, because you're not nearly as sensitive as the sensitive Geneva audiences. <laughs> so thank you for that. But can I, can I, on your behalf, also thank our speakers who have given this uh, Herculean evening. Thank you very much.